Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined once again by Andrea Lipinski and Patty Bianco. We are back with On the Human Condition by St. Basil. How are you all doing today? I'm good. I'm glad to be with both of you. It's good to be back. Well, this week is a little different. We've, we've been reading uh, basically homilies that, that St. Basil wrote um, uh, for the last several weeks. Um, the end of the book is, is slightly different, but I think still uh, we're included in this collection because they are uh, tied to the same things um, about human nature and our relationship with God, our relation to God. Um, the first is a letter that is called letter 233, I guess, 233 of, of St. Basil's letters to Bishop Amphilochius, who was a student of his, uh, a disciple of his, who also became a bishop in his own right, who had asked a question. I did, you know, do something I don't normally do, but um, after reading it, I was like, I want, I want us to know exactly what the question was. <laughs> the question was. So I looked back into the introduction and just kind of scanned around for it. He said that, let's see, this letter succinctly discusses the functions of the human mind, the activity for which God created it, and how it can be used for good, evil, or morally neutral purposes. And this says it complements the discussion of emotions in the homily against anger. So I think that's why the the translator included it in this collection. It doesn't list the actual like specific question, but that was kind of the the premise of the of the letter. Um, so that's that's really I mean what it is. Saint Faisal uh, goes into uh, the use of the mind uh, and its its power uh, being used uh, for good or evil, depending on how how we go about using it. Um, and he leaves space for for a, kind of a neutralness that um, I think maybe other philosophers and theologians don't. But which I thought was interesting. He said. Uh, Indeed, these are even said to be in the middle, which in itself inclines neither toward virtue nor toward evil. Um, but he leaves that that open um, and and talks about uh, you know using the mind uh, not for wicked things, but for closely examining the truth. It seems to be his his use for good, and that's that's really the, the what the letter's about. It's only about two pages, as letters often are rather short. So. Uh, and then the last part of the book is a selection of his long rules. I think we mentioned previously that these rules were ones that apparently St. Uh, uh, Benedict kind of leaned on developing his own rules later, uh, centuries later. Um, but the rules for those who aren't familiar, these would be the um, uh, the dictates for a, a monastic community, typically. And it's the rules written by oftentimes the abbot or the, the head of that monastery. And they're kind of uh, uh, a catechesis uh, in orientation. They're, you know, that might be something you could, as I was reading along, I was like, oh, this could be used in a, cate- a catechism by by a church if they wanted to. But it's it's instruction. Uh, well, it's instruction of both understanding the right the right order of things, but also instruction in and in how they're to go about their their time in the in the monastery. Uh, this isn't the full one. Like I said, it's selections of his long rules. You'll have oftentimes what are called long rules and short rules. The short rules is kind of the condensed version often of the longer ones. And he starts off kind of right in the same things that the homily is talking about. Um, but, but leaving off, starting off where they leave off is, you know, the, the ranking of importance of commandments. Um, and talks about uh, loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as your, as yourself. 
And then he goes into each of those. What does it mean to, to love uh, love toward God and, and the next rule? And then what, is it, what does it look like to love the neighbor? And, and then finishes out with, uh, which I thought was a really interesting section. I, I can't wait till we get to it on concerning the fear of God, which is a relatively short one. But, um, but in light of those other things, when it comes to love being the commandments, um, and then, and then he talks about the, the necessity of the community itself. Uh, in, in this, in particular, he's talking about the uh, monastic community here. So he's talking about, um, all men in this monastic community. But I think there's a lot that applies in that section to, uh, how we think about uh, the life of the church as well. So it was a really interesting read, a little different than what we've been doing, a little change of pace, but, um, but I found it really interesting to, to ponder. So, yeah. Uh, should we start? I discuss with the letter since that comes first. Sounds great. What struck me on the in the very first page was that the wrong use of the mind is what leads to idolatry. <laughs> that just jumped out at me a lot. I was like, "Oh, interesting." Um, he talks about the Nadine does not regard wood as wood, but as God, and does not consider gold to be money, but an object of worship. But if it turns toward the more divine side and receives the gifts of the spirit, then it becomes able to grasp the more divine realities as far as is commensurate with its own nature. And the, it is the, here is the mind the, or the rational capacity of the human being. I, I hung out with that last sentence that you just read, but if it turns, if the mind turns toward the more divine, mm-hmm. what turns it? Because he puts in, mm-hmm. I was like, what turns it to the more divine side? To receiving the gifts of the spirit. It's interesting that you said before that it's a that our mind has a twofold power Mm. with it. One is one aspect is wicked, and the demons draw us with them toward our own apostasy, while the other is more divine and good and leads us toward the likeness of God. So I think that is the question. What what initially turns us toward the divine side? Yeah that we can then receive the gifts of the spirit that will help us be able to grasp these things. Maybe our own pursuits, because he says for when our pursuits are wicked, clearly the movements of the mind are also wicked, such as adultery, theft, idolatry, slander, strife, etc. Then it says there's this middle part where the soul is involving nothing. Um. So then the mind commingled with the divinity of the spirit mm-hmm. already beholds the greatest visions. So like it's already beholds the greatest visions and perceives the beauties of God, yet only as far as the gift allows and as its own structure can receive. Like, I don't know, like I've, I've very much enjoyed his writing so far. And this one, I just, I didn't see it as clear mm. and maybe... It's because this was the I'm I'm jumping into the middle of a conversation with him now. Yeah. Like the letter is in the middle of a conversation between two people. And I don't have all of the preparation to get to this question. Yeah, I think that was the same feeling that drove me back to to look in the introduction and see if it gives me any kind of clue about what the conversation was about. Um and it gives us more of a summary of what the letter is, but right. really I kind of wanted the question that he asked. Yeah. Brenda, what do you think about what he said about the middle? Because I think last week you were talking about the virtues and the vices and that, oh, I can't remember now what you said, that maybe our our virtue is more the middle. And then we, do you remember when you were saying that? Um, 
here he says that if we're in the middle, we're, we're neither inclined toward virtue nor toward evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just don't know. I mean, he says that here in this thing mm-hmm. in the, in the middle, in the middle, in the middle of this, <laughs> but then everything around it seems to, seems to suggest like you can't really stay there. Like you might have a momentary thing where they, because he starts off talking about it often heads straight toward the truth, right? Uh, the, uh, that the mind is good and that we have that which is according to the image of the creator and the activity of the mind is good. And that as it is always in motion, it often forms images of non-existent things as if they existed, yet it often heads straight toward the truth. It seems like the mind is active uh, in, the, in such a way that it's it's more often than not moving toward one of these two directions. Mm-hmm. I think he's trying to suggest that the mind isn't itself or the capacity of the mind isn't aren't themselves either good or evil when he talks about that middle part. But I don't think he really gives much room for being able to just sit there and be in neutral. Like the mind can't really just stay in neutral and not based on what I see around it, around that statement anyway. Right. And it's interesting. I, I think he tends to lean toward the virtue, right? It says earlier in section one that our mind heads straight toward the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that feels consistent with what he said in the, in the in the other homilies, and then what he talks about even in the rules here that we'll get to in a minute. That that our nature is actually in is inclined toward to see God. Uh, it's only when it's it's only that it that it's been corrupted or that we corrupt it that it loses track of that. But it is the natural bent for us to love God, and he, he gets into that into the. I mean, that seems to be his position anyway, both from the other homilies and then the the rules that follow this. But I think you're right. I think he leans that way. He leans toward he leans toward man wanting to be virtuous in like in most men, which I think puts him. I don't know. I feel like that puts him in in, in company with you know most of the philosophers and. Um, I mean, kind of everybody until you get to like really nihilistic, real, real nihilists, you know, because even even someone like um, Nietzsche, like talks about people doing what they think is right. Like they're they think they're doing what's best or, or they're, you know, so I think it puts him kind of in the mainstream of philosophical thinking that we want to, to be virtuous. We just don't really know what that is. Or it's been corrupted, or in his case, he was talking about it's, it's been corrupted, it's been distracted, it's been deceived by the demons, you know, in, in some cases. That's what whereas he the, says. Whereas the philosopher would just say, might just say, well, we just, you haven't reasoned well enough to find out what the good actually is, you know, the pure philosopher, but. Right, with all reason. But he says here on the second sentence of page 109, um, I mean, okay, we'll read the first one. If the mind is misled by demons, it will worship idols or be turned aside towards some other form of impiety, which you just shared. But mm-hmm. if it has opened itself, so now it has to do something on its own behalf. It has to open itself to the assistance of the spirit. It will perceive the truth and know God, mm-hmm. but it will only know in part. Right? Yeah. Um, so he concludes with, so indeed, the mind's faculty of judgment is good and has been given for a useful purpose. 
the comprehension of God, yet it acts to the extent of its capacity. So like I think of capacity of, of weightlifting, uh, right? Like I can only lift what I've built the capacity to be able to lift. Um, mm-hmm, and there's mm-hmm. a strengthening that has to happen to go beyond. And so I feel like he's pulling something along that line. Um, and there's an it, ultimate limit to that capacity, right? Like even if you work out all the time, my skeletal structure will only support so much muscle mass. And, yeah. you know, it's, there is a outer limit. It's a to, goal. Right. Yeah. So there mm-hmm. is a capacity. Um, and I think he's saying the same thing here. I think you're right. There's a, there is a capacity that you can strengthen it and grow it, but there is an ultimate capacity. I feel because of that, that I don't know, like, I, again, I, we've taken him very seriously. He uses his words well. He says, but if it has opened itself to the assistance of the spirit, so like it has to do it itself, mm-hmm. opening itself to the spirit's assistance. Yeah, the mind has to turn toward God. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, though, he said that this, this, the faculty of the mind for judgment was given to us for the comprehension of truth. That faculty in general. And God is truth itself. So the faculty is to know God. It's faculty's purpose, existence is to know God of the mind. Yeah. Find it interesting. Like the the next sentence, because it said, first of all, our mind is to know our God, but to know him as much as infinitely great as the infinitely great can be perceived by the very small. Mm -hmm. Again, that limited capacity that there are some things we cannot know about God. Mm -hmm. That even our eye cannot Mm -hmm. hold it. Right. That there there are visible things and invisible things. So I like that analogy of of the sky, right? We look Mm -hmm. up at the sky and we can't take it all in with our with our eye right even though there's so much of the visible uh, of the physical sky that we cannot see we still consider that we've seen the sky mm-hmm. right we, we don't even consider that we're seeing it in part yeah it makes me wonder if the question was in relation to um you know when he talks about it in the other homilies uh, it might have been the one on anger. I can't remember now. Mm-hmm. The um, the kind of the runaway imagination that we talked about when like, that you mm-hmm. when it when you let it uh, kind of imagine some something untrue for yourself, and then you become you know angry about what what what's real what reality is and those kind of things. If that was the question, like it was about, isn't the mind just isn't it dangerous? Right, the, this capacity. Uh, that allows us to imagine things or to imagine that we can carve something out of wood and call down a spirit into it. And, you know, which is the idolatry on that first page, right? That this, that that's a dangerous capacity and therefore maybe not a good capacity. And I think he's answering that. No, it's a capacity that was given by God. So therefore it's good. And here's how it's good, but here's how it can go wrong. That's, I don't know. Thanks. Sorry. Yeah, I've just been re- wrestling with what, what the question might have been, and that and that just kind of, as y'all were talking, popped up in my head. Like, oh wait, maybe that's why. But I couldn't figure it out on my own. No. 
I'd love to consider the rules. Yeah, these these were interesting. This is definitely a form. This is definitely a a, a writing that probably most people aren't real familiar with, um, unless you've. I mean, the only one I really even knew much about was was the Rule of Saint Benedict, which I still, which I haven't sat and read or anything. I've heard excerpts people talk about it, but um, it's a very specific kind of document, right? So it's probably a little bit, at least for me, it was a little bit kind of uh, foreign. Um, so I had to keep reminding myself this is specific instruction for like novices or people who are in the monastery. Okay, well, I, I'm just going to say the obvious first. Question one, page 111. There's no question marks on any of those sentences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like how he calls the questions on something. They're all on the something of something of something. Yeah. yeah. And that's a question. On the ranking and sequence of the commandments of the Lord. Yeah, there's more questions in his answers than there are in the questions. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Which is, we've established he likes to do that, likes those rhetorical questions. But mm-hmm. Well, he actually uses his questions to answer questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like how his answer to this one is just like, uh, yeah, this was already covered in the Gospels. Uh, <laughs> but he doesn't write the rest of them. He's like, love your God, love your neighbor, because everything else is tied up in those. Question two. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Anything stand out for y'all on that one? No, like I was like, is he gonna like actually rank them? That was that'd be um, risky, but he does not. He was. I love how he answered though. Okay, so let's just look at the words of his answer. Your question is an old one, and long ago (laughs) was stated in the Gospels, right? But your question. So now, like, he writes as if he's talking to one person, right? But the rules aren't talking to just one person in a conversational way. Right. So I just, I thought that was intriguing. He's, yeah. He's writing as if it is. He wants the only, it to that way. Yeah. The only thing I could think is like, like each person gets a copy of this when like they join the monastery and like, yeah. it's just like written, like, like it's to you in yeah. particular, but yeah. yeah. No, they do the fill in the blank, copy, paste. Yeah, that's that's right. right. Your version. Patty, your version. I don't know. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, Your question, we, comma, Brandon, comma, is an old one. <laughs> when we start yes. something new, we always have questions. And more of us have the same question than we realize. Right. True. As they come in, I'm sure he he got this question a lot. Yeah, you have to wonder if that's where the practice of like creating or writing these rules comes for these abbots of and like heads of monasteries. They're like... All right, it's been a year and I've had the same question 37 times. I'm just going to write all these out. <laughs> Here, read, helpful, read this and then come to some questions if you're when you're done with that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, are these FAQs? Yeah, you know, like <laughs> so the FAQs. <laughs> you know, this is what this is what all that stuff is when you onboard at some new company. Like, listen, right. don't ask us any questions. Watch the, all the training videos. <laughs> Set up your try and set up your own email. All right. If anything like doesn't work, watch the video again. <laughs> then email me with your questions. I have other things to do. <laughs> oh, so bad. <laughs> like I, he's like I can't do my own prayers because y'all keep knocking on my doors with these questions. It's the same question. 
Plus, this one's right in the Gospels. Like, did y'all just right. not even read the New Testament? Right. How did mm-hmm. you get here without reading the New Testament? Yeah. Nah. It's like college freshmen. Like, how did you even get in without reading this book yet? I don't understand how you're here. <laughs> oh. Awesome. Okay. Good. I did like the sentence. He said, the Lord himself provided the ranking of his own commandments. Yeah. Yeah. And that there's this dependency, right? If you obey the first one, right, the second yeah. one will be yeah. fulfilled. Yeah, and I like that that's, and the, he, I mean, he's really setting us up for what's coming next, right? Like, now he's going to walk you through that with with more specific questions, um, you know, on the love toward God and, and that in accord with nature, there is in human beings an inclination and an impulse towards the Lord's commandment. Like, that's, he bakes that out of the question, like, there is an impulse toward this. Um, so let's just first discuss the love of God with us. So he starts with God's love toward us first, which is cool. He says, love toward God is not taught. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, he really, I mean, he he's committed to this, this idea, I think, that uh, both, you know, but from scripture, obviously, he quotes scripture all throughout here. And, yeah. and then, you know, what was taught him and that this is in us by nature, by the, by the way we're, by the way we're created and the, the, any teaching or anything like that's all just cultivation of the thing that's there. Reminding me of the question in me now. Mm-hmm. That's really good. Mm-hmm. I hung out with the, where he says a certain seed like principle was implanted within us that contained by nature, the starting point of our appropriation of love as our own. Right. If we weren't taught it, but there was a seed put yeah. in us and having received this seed, let us cultivate it with diligence at the school of God's commandments and nurture it with skill. Yeah, and I can't remember if he specifically says it in this section or not, but that, that just echoes back to his discussion of what it means to be made in the image, right? And so that capacity to love is is kind of implanted with that seed. Um, and then we, if it's cultivated, we take it on as our, we, it becomes our own, right? We, we, we take that authority to love and to, uh, from the image of God not take but it's given to us well and i liked we keep bringing down i skipped a little bit it is necessary to know that though this is but one virtue love is but one of the virtues but it's power by its power it brings into action and attains every commandment hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well i mean and we'll we'll get into the love your neighbor part in a minute but i, I it makes me wonder if it's like Okay, the starting point is okay. I have, I have to love this person that's annoying me because God says to love this person that's annoying me. So I'm going to do it because I love God, and He says do it. Yep. But that that's through that obedience that we actually come to love the other person and are able to do it without it being without it being a duty. If that makes sense. That, that yeah. I, I mean, so we talk about in teaching how um, you can't know what you don't love, and you can't love what you don't know. Yeah, I don't see how it's all that different here, hmm. right? So the let's keep picking on the person that annoys you, Brandon. 
because you're the only one who deals with that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not y'all. It's neither one of you. No. Oh, no. no. Good. <laughs> right. Good to know. <laughs> Thanks. But you know. So you that, might know some of them. <laughs> <laughs> so if out of obedience you love that person who annoys you, you'll come to know them and in turn, I think, be able to love them. Yeah. And it not be just a uh, an act of obedience, though that may be the starting spot. Luckily, we don't have to deal with that in any of our churches or schools or Christian <laughs> organizations because no one's annoying there in those places. Yeah. So, And that's why the peacemaker wasn't um, made by God either. <laughs> they did say we have also received before, beforehand the power to practice them, the commandments. So mm-hmm. yep. if we're not feeling very loving, we have the power to practice it. That's what I think. And I think by the by and acting in that power to practice it, we actually come to know and come to love. Yeah. Right. He goes on this the the next paragraph starts with accordingly. Having received a commandment to love God, we have the power to love, which was placed in us as a foundation simultaneously with our first fashioning. We are willingly filled with all goodwill toward our benefactors. Right? Like it's 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 there from our nature. Yeah, and that's when he it's in that paragraph he starts to to shift toward kind of the why we owe love to God, right? And he gives us a couple different reasons. Um, starting in the middle of that paragraph, like, uh, well, right after what you just read, for our nature, we are desirous of beautiful things. Mm-hmm. And then it calls our attention to, like, what's more beautiful, what's more wonder, wondrous uh, than divine beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the, like, the glimpses we can even get of it or outshine everything else, right? That's the first thing is like we we're we're just naturally desires of beauty and God's the most beautiful thing. Therefore, we owe God love. Right. And he calls it analogies to the true light. So if God's the true light, mm-hmm. we we greatly want all of these analogies to the true light. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. The the morning stars rays, the moon's brightness, the sun's light, the you know, I I would gander that the most often photographed thing is sunsets and sunrises. My kids were trying to take a picture from the car of the sunrise this morning, which is it wasn't even, I mean, it was, the colors were pretty, but it's also over, like, not the prettiest part of Houston we're driving through. Sure, right. But they're, yeah. like, trying desperately from the car to get this pinkish sky on their phone. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's an analogy of the true light that we really want and desire. I also like that he said we have affection for what is close and akin to us without being mm. taught yeah right? so we we do have this natural desire towards beautiful things but he also says different things appear beautiful to different people mm-hmm. and i i think of that like yes loving that annoying person eventually i get close to them right and so i become to to love them also, the things that are near to me, I find I have this nostalgia, right? Of um, yeah, yeah. May, maybe I like my my eighties caboodle. I just don't <laughs> want to part with it. <laughs> it's just, I think it's beautiful, oh, Patricia. Yes. <laughs> yep. Uh, 
Yes, the caboodle. Yours too, huh, Brandon? You you kept yours? Uh, no, I just I I, I had three sisters, and I was like, oh, it's like a tackle box for women. This is awesome. <laughs> you got it. So yeah, okay. yeah, but I I have other things for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love some music that's not, definitely probably not great music, and you know fashions and whatnot mm, sure so near the end of that page 113 he says this beauty right the the true light this beauty is not contemplated by fleshly eyes but is grasped by the soul alone and the mind i thought that was interesting yeah, he talks about this divine beauty i think that we do see in creation but there's something more like you were talking about, he's talking to the monastics and this yearning that they have. So there's this beauty beyond what we even see with our eyes, the invisible that they're getting closer to. Yeah, I, I think, yes, I think that's that's right. Um, uh, and even when we have that experience of something that we see with our eyes, mm. it's it's not just the visual representation in front of us, right? There's something that happens when we do have that feeling or that, uh, that transcendent experience with something we see mm-hmm. that it's could because it's calling us into something beyond just the sunset itself, or just beyond the, the, the vista from the top of, you know, Pike's peak or whatever it is, right. That there's a sense of wonder that's beyond the the physical thing we're looking at. I think um, that we're being drawn up into. Yeah. He wraps up section one saying now God is the good and all things long after good. Hence all things long after God. And I think that has to go back toward the, the spirit being in the right place, right? Or the mind being in the right place by turning toward God because mm-hmm. I've had experiences where I've seen the thing that's the amazing view. And it's like that day was like, I, you know, it's like, okay, like, you know, blah, whatever. And then the other ones where you're just raptured, like in, you just can't take your, tear yourself away from it. Right. And there's no, there's no reason. There's no physical reason. One was better than the other. I mean, they're both incredible grand views, whatever the grand Canyon and then some other one. Right. And so, but, if you're not in the place to receive it, you don't, you don't have, you can appreciate, Oh, that's really impressive and beautiful, but not like, right. You're just kind of stuck. And then it draws you into, you know, contemplation and prayer and, you know, all these things. Um, and so it's, it's about the, the, the eyes of the soul have being prepared for it, ready for it, turning toward it continuously. Mm-hmm. Was it in that last section that you talked about the power or the evil defined as the wicked use indeed against a commandment of God of the power given us by God for good? Mm. So we look at this beauty, but we turn we turn it aside. Mm. We're essentially making it evil. Yeah. And then this, this section two, he takes us back into action, right? That, that this is this is an active thing. The mind leads toward a, a, or the recognition of owing God love, um, in this case, because of it being beautiful, uh, requires action. That love toward God 
this was, I, I mean, I, I got blue in a couple of places, but um, his second sentence in that part two, starting a second sentence, therefore the obligation of love toward God is demanded of us as a necessity whose lack in the soul is of all evils, the most unendurable property. For estrangement and turning away from God are more unbearable than the punishments expected in hell and more oppressive to the one suffering than the deprivation of light is to the eye, even if no pain is added to it, or than the deprivation of life is to a living creature. That was, that just really kind of um, struck me and was convicting. I don't know. Lots of things. Um, like, do I really, do I really believe that and live that way, right? That that estrangement right now today is worse than whatever whatever's waiting in hell for those who turn away from god i'm not sure that i i want to ponder that a lot more it's the most unendurable poverty mm -hmm. i i uh i'm yeah uh, i don't know what the politically correct words are for poverty that begets poverty that begets poverty mm. um i've witnessed it it's rough <laughs> and this goes beyond that physical poverty right that we might see on the streets right of mm -hmm. not having material things but to not have this spiritual connection with christ is poorer than the poorest yeah, you're talking. You're talking about a poverty that continuously eats itself, right, Andrea? That's so it's just continuously becoming more impoverished by the devouring itself. Um, and it's it's handed on from generation to generation. Yeah, it's a lacking of um, uh, of direction, mm. um, of knowing, uh, and it's a lot of lies to keep it. Actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the lies are, are used to pacify the wounds, right? We lie to ourselves, but our, our actions uh, demonstrate the truth about what's going on inside of us. People can see often by our action what's really going on, mm -hmm. but we'll lie to ourselves to uh, keep the status quo. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that that's, he places this um, like really strong image um, of uh, as he transitions into another reason we owe oh god love right he's moving from this idea of owing it because he's the most beautiful uh mm -hmm. to he's the creator like that we, we you know we're born of him um so he kind of starts that comparison to the natural affection a baby or child has for the mother um uh how much more so than the one for the one who created us um which is so it's an interesting transition point to go from this kind of uh picture of extreme poverty to be out uh, you know to be disconnected estrangement from god to this kind of very nurturing maternal image of god or, or, or reason for loving god so the desire um in us is he says by nature that that love towards benefactor is strong very strong right mm -hmm. and yet um in our in our current society, we've labeled something called attachment disorders, mm. where there something became broken, and in that young love between parent and child, and I, that's the, that's part of the poverty that I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, 
and that brokenness and dysfunction goes in both directions, right? It's often the uh, the parent has a unhealthy attachment with the child as well. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the parent has whatever's unhealthiness. And so then the child is not able to attach. And then that right. goes on and gives birth to more places of woundedness. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting that he ties those two together, the, 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 the image of the maternal um, and what's the word, not child attachment. And then the almost man and beast benefactor in the second half, right? With the ox and the dog and um, mm. that both of those produce a kind of a natural love for the, for the mother and the benefactor um, as long as they're, they're, they're natural. Right? And so, so as long as they're nurtured properly, then that's, that should be there. Um, yeah. I love how he pulls on. They, when it's, when it's present, they are so great in multitude as to be beyond counting. And so great is the magnitude that even one would suffice to make us responsible to offer all of our thankfulness to the giver. Right. And so we don't often talk in our culture about magnitude and multitude. Mm. I appreciated seeing the thing that you can count and the part that you can't. It's bigger than both of those. Right. Right. Cause he's about to go, like, I'm going to pass over a bunch of stuff. That's like that each one individually would be worth loving God for. Yeah. Um, well, we, and we tend to like in our human capacities, those things, um, you have to either kind of have one or the other, right? Like you can either have a lot of something or you can have a deep of some, of one thing, you know, like, uh, and that, and God's not bound by that in the same way. Um, um, um trying to think of, what I'm t- an example of what I'm talking about, but, but you know, it's people either are deep or wide and our, our, our reading can either be deep or wide. We can read lots mm-hmm. of things fast and know them a little bit, or we can read a few things slow and deep, or, you know, we can eat a lot of cheap, quick food, or we can take time making something really good. Um, and maybe I that's not, that. yeah, yeah. Or maybe it's not even, cheap quickly maybe you know you can go to you can go up to a buffet and get like one little thing of everything and have a bunch of little bites of and taste lots of stuff and that's great it's a fun experience right or you can get something a full plate of something where you're able to savor it bite after bite and you know and um we're bound by one of those two options happening at the same time but god isn't and so his gifts are both great in multitude and great and each of them is great is deep in magnitude and I'm going to skip over a bunch of those and just focus on a few. <laughs> like he says, like, we don't have time for all that because we'd be here literally forever. Um, so, but I like how he says, let's be silent about, but then he lists them anyway. That's not here. Right? That's the best. <laughs> He's like, listen, I'm not even going to tell you about the sun and the moon and the, like, I'm not even going to remind you, except for as I'm saying it, I'm reminding you um, of all these things. But we're going to go on past those. Uh, because the mention of those is enough, right? To like send someone's mind wondering about like the the amazingness of just the gift of the sun, right? To to mankind. Um, but he goes right past it. It was a great. I love that. I thought that was a great uh, rhetorical choice there for, from Saint Basil. So this is when he says, "But there's one thing we can't pass over." Yeah, yeah, right? it's impossible. 
um, can't be silent about this gift that God created the human being according to the image and likeness of God and made him worthy of knowledge of himself, equipped him with reason in contrast to the animals, and granted that he take delight in the inconceivable beauties of paradise and appointed him ruler of all things on earth. Yeah, he takes us right back to the first two homilies we we read, right? Like image and likeness. That it alone is such an incredible thing mm-hmm. that we should be in con- constant awe of it all the time and loving God for it. It should blow our mind every day, all the time, and it doesn't. So he has to remind us. How yeah? How well do I understand this? And you know, I've I've tried to take it to heart when looking at engaging with my students to recognize that they are image bearers. Mm-hmm. When I interact with them, when I ask questions of them, make expectations, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I always do that for myself. Yeah, and that's an important reminder because the very next thing he talks about in here is, and then we threw that away. Then we rejected it. Mm-hmm. And so the next best thing he gave us, like after giving us that to begin with, he didn't like cast us aside. Yeah, we are not he gives sent us, away. Yeah, he gives us help after help after help. First, he gives us the law and the prophets and the, the you know all these things mm-hmm. to get us prepared, and then he then he comes down and sets aside his glory to to save us. Mm-hmm. I like the lot the the phrase awakened. One of the gifts that he gave us was awakened eagerness for good things by promises. So I love- promises in that list when he says first he gave the law as mm. a help. He appointed angels to guard and care for man. He sent prophets to reprove evil and teach virtue. He thwarted the impulse impulse toward evil by threats. Right, we could sit there for a while. The where I went was the next one: awakened eagerness for good things by promises. So yeah. I had a lot of the promises of scripture to be there to awaken an eagerness for the good in yeah. me. I hadn't thought of that. That's good. I kind of read right through that without giving it as much thought. That's thank you for drawing our attention to that. Man, that's right, really good. So in the sky is to awaken an eagerness for the good. I hadn't thought of that. Dang. Another day. The sun comes up. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm alive. Yeah. Somewhere in scripture, he talks about how a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering mm-hmm. flame he will not extinguish. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that is. Um, so, it's Psalms? Is it the Psalms? Yeah, I am clueless. So bad. Um, Yep, right? I'm the one who brought it up, and I brought it up without being able to land it. Um, but that's where, like, I look at all of these. Um, he appointed angels to guard and care for us, right? So that, yeah, the bruised reed isn't going to be broken, and the smoldering wick, flame, you know, that's barely like one little puff and it's going to go out. That kind of a flame isn't, he's not going to let it go out. Isaiah, it's Isaiah, it's prophecy. prophecy, which would make sense. It's prophecy. It's prophet. He sent the prophets to reprove evil and to teach virtue. Mm-hmm. Right. And promises to, like you were just saying, promises to stoke 
the the eagerness for good. Yeah. yeah. And that to me is a promise, right? That he's not going to break or extinguish the little that we have left. Yeah. A bruisery he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. Yeah. I appreciate too, since he's the he's the spiritual father for this community of, of monastics. Um, and obviously through, through, through time and space for us reading him now, um, he's, he's, he's a, he's a spiritual father and, and leader, um, passing wisdom that, uh, after he kind of gives us all this, including Christ bearing our weakness and, um, and not only saving us from death, but giving us the honor of divinity, um, that, then, that he says, if I may speak of my own feelings, when I think of these things, I fall into a sudden certain shuddering and alienation of mind through fear um, that he would fall away from, from this love of God and repro- become a reproach to Christ uh, because he's, we're still being attacked by he who deceives us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I appreciate that kind of... Yeah vulnerability from St. Basil to, to share that. And you know, that, that this is a continuous, um, uh, struggle. Um, and he really kind of lays out Satan as the accuser, right? He, he tricks us and then he can, then he accuses us before the Lord, like, you know, um, and so I really appreciated that just that little kind of in there to, to this, question uh, in part four it's encouraging since it was written by someone we we call saint basil that you know there's it's hard for him too so odd like i think about um you know a bunch of children on the playground and when one didn't like what one another one did you run to whoever's in charge and accuse them mm-hmm. right he hit me, he yelled at me, he won't let me swing, he pushed me right. down, whatever, whatever. And to think of Satan going and accusing us of things before the Lord. It just seems odd. Okay, so here's, here's I got the analogy for you. Great. You have two boys. I do. You've been on, you've been on car trips. Yes. Right? Like, the one of them's like putting his hand like right in front of the other one's face. I'm not touching him. I'm not touching him. I'm not touching it. And the other one just turns and just whacks him, right? He hit me. He hit me. You know, that's mm-hmm. technically the other one didn't touch him first. Mm-hmm. He just mm-hmm. annoyed him into he goaded it's him into hitting him. Out of him. <laughs> yeah. So that's it. It's right. Like I'm just gonna right push you right to the edge. And then when you mess up, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell on you. Mm-hmm. And you know, not point out the fact that I'm the one who convinced you to do it. Um, so you just forget that part. Okay, that's what I. That's what I, I. You know, on a much larger scale, obviously. Yeah, it's just uh, very juvenile. <laughs> I don't. Know, I think it's helpful to remember. Like, yeah, Satan is juvenile. Interesting. To, I mean, it's not surprising, but I've, I I noted that he he spends. What one, two, three, four, five and a half pages mm, right. on the question of concerning love toward God. Mm-hmm. Um, and then only like a page, yeah. a little more than a page on concerning love of neighbor, love of neighbor. 
because it seems like to me his whole point of loving neighbor is like, yeah, this is just it's it's just part of loving God. Like that's just it's mm-hmm. once you have a right understanding of loving God, yeah, you know, he says, Well, if you love me, you'll fulfill my commandments. And if you and one of my and my commandments is to love your neighbor. So and and it's just we do, I think we we try to overcomplicate these things sometimes so much. And he by walking us through the love of God is able to kind of um really clearly lay out this love of neighbor, I think, um more succinctly. Yeah, I mean a way I talk about it as a um the cup analogy was given to me years ago. Uh to understand ourselves and that what, what we fill our cup with mm-hmm. is what will overflow out of us. And so if, if we've turned our attention towards the Lord and loving him, then that's what will overflow. And I think that's why he can spend such little time on loving neighbor. Mm-hmm. If our focus and attention is on loving God in a way, loving neighbor is an overflow of that. Right. And he just kind of goes through it. Boom, boom, boom. By this, mm-hmm. all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, right? It's like a reminder of, it's not going to be about the miracles. It's not going to be about how perfect your theology is when you lay it all out. It's going to be about how you how you love one another. That's how people are going to tell. And that every good thing done to him, done in love to the neighbor is, is transferred to, to God. That is loving God. Right. Where's the, oh yeah, right at the top of the, the last or second paragraph on 18 just you know therefore through the first commandment the second is also successfully accomplished well through yeah. the second one returns again to the first it's like this is just the reciprocal nature of these two which is why they're the two that christ told us you have to do i liked where he said on page 117 for nothing is so proper to our nature as to share our lives with each other and to need mm-hmm. each other and to love our own kind. We're communal animals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If we're all made in the image and likeness of God, we love God, then we'll love our neighbor. What did y'all think about on the concerning fear of God? Because this was an interesting section, even though it was like super short. Right. I was like, we got dink. <laughs> This one is super simple, <laughs> right? Like he didn't give much. Well, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about it before I got to it, but. You didn't prepare your mind to ask that question. Yeah. My mind wasn't going there, but when I got to it, I was like, oh yeah, this is a quote unquote contradiction that's brought up sometimes, right? This, um, well, I mean, we even talk about it in terms of uh, of people, right? Would you rather be loved or feared? And, you know, um, mm. a better leader is loved than, you know, whatever. I haven't, there... ha- I haven't had those party games. I haven't played that one. <laughs> well, I mean, no, there's arguments, right? There's arguments in like leadership books, right? Like, well, you know, mm-hmm. you want your people to love you. Well, they love you, you know, or whatever. Get away with everything. Yeah, right. And if, well, if they fear you, they're just going to be waiting for you to take you to take you down or, you know, whatever it is, right? Yeah. Um, and then, and then more specifically, I think this does is a question that comes up. Like, how do you, how do we deal with the verses that talk about, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, right. and I thought this was really um, 
I guess I just hadn't heard it put this way and this, and this mm-hmm. kind of tightly. Um, so I, I wanted to think about it a lot more, but it was, seems to me a good reconciling of those verses, maybe. Um, that when you're just being introduced to piety, the elementary mm-hmm. teaching that is as a fear is more useful. Like we should be afraid of, of God. He's all powerful. And we have, um, you know, we, we've rejected him. Uh, there's, there's going to be punishment or eternal separation for some people. And that, that continue to reject him. You should figure that, but he really ties it to Paul's talking about, you know, spiritual milk and spiritual meat, which I thought was just made so much sense. And so, um, that when you move beyond that, then the, the focus is on love with when it comes to God and his, what he calls here, the more central commandments to love God, to love your neighbor, but be on guard, never to fall back into a position where you should be afraid, where you should be afraid of God's wrath. Um, I don't know. It seems like a really good balance and he seems to just kind of nail it in that one little short paragraph. So, so I want to restate it and tell me if I'm, if I'm understanding it rightly and you're adding to it to help me understand it, Brandon. And so with that, I'm now able to say this, then the fear of the Lord is milk Mm -hmm. and loving the Lord is meat. Yeah. Which makes sense. Even in the context of that verse, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's right. the beginning point, not the end point. The end point is is loving. Well, I mean, the end point is obeying the commandments, not because you're afraid. The end point is obeying the commandments because you love, right? Well, so if the end point of, of life is sanctification, theosis, union with God, that's the end. Mm-hmm. So then that makes sense that it's love. Right. That's a state of love, right? Unity is a state of love. Yeah. But how do we get there? I mean, he's told us that we we were born with that capacity, but that it has to, like, it's only the size at which it has, you know, has a capacity of being practiced. Well, and, and, so, I, mm-hmm. and I think the way St. Saint, Saint Basil has this ordered, he's suggesting that the way you do it is to love the neighbor. That is the practice. That is the thing that grows the capacity. That's why he puts these things in the order he puts them in. And this man, that's hard. Yeah. An annoying neighbor of Brandon's. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Going back to your annoying neighbor that you start with the obedience to love and then the love will come. Same with fear. That might be their starting point mm-hmm. to fear the Lord. Just like a child when you're trying to teach them when they're young. You know, don't touch the stove. <laughs> they give them fear. Eventually, they come to love that commandment from the parent <laughs> which protected them. I mean, I think it's even like, yeah, that's why in those situations you yell, right? Like they're reaching for the stove. You don't just gently say it. You yell it because you have to like scare them almost with your voice to startle them out of something that's going to hurt them or they're running toward the street. You yell stop, right? Because it's destruction on the other end of that if they don't heed the fear. Um, And then they grow into you giving them loving instruction and being able to receive it and accept it as understanding that it's coming from love. So, 
and they respond in love. And I think that's, yeah, the more we think of ourselves as children, probably when it comes to God, the better, the easier it is to understand. So, but we're children who can eat meat. Like we're, you know, we're, we're children who can eat sure. chicken, <laughs> some chicken nuggets maybe or something like it's not steak. <laughs> Pre-processed meat. <laughs> they're, like in the, they're like in the shape of dinosaurs and stuff still, you know, yes. like it's, but. Uh, it's lots of honey. But we're getting there. Um, okay. I just wonder where question five and six went. Right. And a little squiggly. Just a little, a little <laughs> yeah. Squiggly. Yeah. My guess is like, this is the actual order in the long these are the actual first four questions, and then he skipped uh, the translator skipped ahead to seven. Um, yeah, because he called it selections, part. long rules, selections. Yeah. You know, apparently, they're not important. Or I, I felt like <laughs> they're not going to play a part in the connection on, on the human condition. Yeah, and that's so, what that's what I thought. Too. It shows the ones that are going to help illuminate the human condition. Yeah, they might have. They might be more specific instruction because like, a lot of these times they'll have specific instructions in these rules for like the work of the monastery and prayer, like the prayer hours. And like those are kind of specific totally to the, form the human condition. <laughs> right, right. But they're specific to the the practice in that particular place. Um, and these are more giving the philosophical, theological underpinning of why you then are doing those things maybe i don't know These so, i mean the- we just said patty just said that by loving our neighbor in action doing mm-hmm. things for the annoying neighbor um we come to love god right love him and love god right um so anyway i just find it interesting like i think yeah. it would still be interesting to hear what they are yeah. saint basil was instructing them to act to behave um because that forms how yeah how we behave, <laughs> how we love, what we know, right? We, we only love what we know and we only know what we love. So, yeah. Instead, he jumps to a long, his next long one, which is about, mm-hmm. well, I don't know if it's the next long one, but to another long one, which is about um, why this has to be done in community, right? Like why this, why not a solitary life? Um, and I found myself bumping in my head back and forth between a, a monastic community and a community the way I live it with a yeah, family, yeah, yeah, neighbors yeah. and a church and businesses around me and how I interact with all of those kinds of things and a city council and, you know. Yeah, I was trying to think really, I mean, I, I was thinking probably more specifically um, or, try not, or trying to think about the church, you know, compared to a monastic community. But mm-hmm, yeah. but yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I don't actually know the history of when the the kind of hermit started to take, um, I can't remember if that's before or after this with St. Um, in the desert fathers, but, um, but then they don't stay that way. They go through that time in the desert and then they end up being leaders of communities. <laughs> but, um, hmm. I can't even remind myself that this isn't, this doesn't, this doesn't mean that there's no exceptions, right? But there's people who are right. called into something more solitary. Um, St. Mary of Egypt, but that had to do with her specific circumstance, right? And her specific, specific sins of her life up to that point right where she has an encounter with god and so that was for her own healing um in a specific way uh, and remind myself that um these are like general rules for a monastic community while well, he's explaining to them though you can't just go sit in your cell all day and do this by mm-hmm. yourself yeah. um 
I don't know if it was right for me to take these ideas and think about them in terms of the way I live out community. I don't live it like this is designed. So that's why I'm saying that to y'all to help me. Well, and I, but I wonder if that's why the, maybe that's why the, the translators decided to skip the ones that were about like specific stuff within the monastic walls, like the work hours and that kind of stuff, because yeah. they're, while they might be a good model to like it for someone who really wants to get into, you know, how do we adapt stuff from the monastic life to the, to our life specifics that it would have drawn focus away from what they were, what this translator was trying to pull together yeah. and more about like this, this does apply. I think, I, I think, I think what you saw, thought was right. I, at least as Corbin, at least along as far as what this translator thought was important. Okay. I think they're saying, yeah, this is part and parcel with the first part, which is, um, so this does this applies to communities, not just a specific monastic community, but a community of believers, at least in particular. So at least it's specific to the it applies directly to the church or to a Christian school or you know, any any kind of gathering of Christians that are specifically like Circe is, you know, a, a, an organization that is a Christian organization. So it applies to that community as well. Um I think so. I don't, I don't think you're taking you're stretching it to, to think that way. I think that's probably why it's in here. Well, I mean, if we add, if we go to the question that isn't a question, concerning the necessity that those who with com- common purpose aim to be well-pleasing to God live together, and that to live as a solitary is difficult and dangerous. So I think what you just pulled on, Brandon, is that those who are have a common purpose of living together to please God. So whether that's a Cersei community or a family or, you know, my larger community. So, yeah, mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah, and I thought he struck a good balance, too, of, like, you need these other people for your sanctification, theosis, whatever word you want, whatever, whatever one you want to choose. <laughs> yep. Um, you also need people who, basically just so you can, like, learn to be patient, all those kind of things. But also the people who will actually just tell you, hey, you're sinning. <laughs> Like the way you were do, doing things is not okay. Um, but then I really appreciated too that like that right toward the end of section one, he said, besides most of the commandments that last paragraph uh, are easily fulfilled by many people in one place. But for one, this is no longer the case for the practice of one commandment hinders another. For instance, when visiting the sick, one cannot be, one cannot welcome the stranger. Like you can't do all the commandments at the same time, all the time. And I think even to some extent, um, we're not all called to do the same thing in, in like literally in your local church, right? You can't be on every committee. Like you shouldn't be, right? right? You shouldn't be, you know. That'd be a flag, flag on the play. Yeah. You shouldn't be <laughs> serving up front and making all the food and taking the meals to the sick. And, you know, like that's just, you shouldn't be. There, There's a reason there's division of labor, right? And it doesn't mean you never do those things, but. I don't know. I, I it was it was comforting to think, oh wait, we we fulfill the commandments together. We we communally can do this together. Um mm-hmm. as well as we communally rub each other the wrong way and tell each other when we're sinning and help us see where we need to improve individually. You know what I mean? So I don't know. That that was I like that. Uh, that he had both those things in here. Yeah, thanks for pulling that out, Brandon. Yeah, I mean, he kind of goes back and forth about that in here, right? Like, you, we need each other for for sanctification, and we need each other to for the common to do common good. Like, 
And section three, that's where he talks about life together in one place has many benefits. And he starts to kind of talk about them. Uh, and I liked that part of it as guarding against the plots of the enemy. Mm-hmm. That, you know, side. Yeah. Started for, for how will he manifest his humility since he has nobody to whom, beside whom he can show himself to be more humble? <laughs> like, <laughs> But I didn't know it was a competition. Right. I mean, how will he train himself in long suffering when nobody opposes his wishes? Um, yeah. Reminds me of like, well, I grew up mostly as an only child, right? And you don't have the siblings or other people to tease you or tell you, you know, when you're being silly. And so you're very self-centered and <laughs> yeah, you get upset, but yeah, you need someone there to, to help you. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially during certain years, you know, there's a, there's obviously a line that becomes cruel and bullying, but everybody needs someone to tease them a little bit at certain points when they're just being a goofball, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's yeah. appropriate. Like, mm, that's how you kind of learn the boundaries sometimes a little bit. And so, um, oh, siblings definitely help keep each other in check. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And so, uh, as well, right? Like, yeah. As a church, mm-hmm. and I, and I like that in this last section, he specifically says like. It's not sufficient just to say, well, I have the scriptures. I can just read them and mm-hmm. know what to do. Um, that has typically gone very bad when one person just decides, I'm going to interpret the scriptures. We get things called cults. Um, <laughs> it, it typically goes very badly. <laughs> but like doesn't actually do the things. That's, the, that's what he really gets into here is like, right. it's like saying I've learned carpentry, but never done any carpentry. Like I've... It, you haven't then really learned carpentry. I don't know how to write essays. Yeah. I don't know how to write them. I don't yeah, have yeah. to actually do it. I can just teach it without yeah, ever having written them. Right. I read all the instructions, but I don't write them. Mm-hmm. Um and he and he specific, and he specifically says that's not the that's not the example we have from the Lord. The Lord's example is to to be the one doing it, to be the one healing, to be the one washing in his case, washing the feet, right? Mm-hmm. So the one serving. Yeah. No one knew the scriptures better than Jesus. But he still did it, did things. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. was convicting. Yeah, I just like, you know, and I, I know it's nothing new, right? Romans two thirteen, the second half. The doers of the law will be made righteous. And that practice is woven throughout this part. Mm-hmm. And then I like how he kind of brings us back to it being both. It's both and that uh, very at the very bottom of page 122. Thus, it is an area, arena for struggle, a fragrance of progress, and continuous training and practice of the Lord's commandments when brothers dwell in one place. Mm-hmm. That arena for struggle and fragrance of progress, the, that juxtaposition I just thought was beautiful. Like, mm-hmm. like, cause the fragrance of progress, I think of like, you know, incense or, you know, that's, that's, yeah. it's like, it's a place of rest when you have that, you know, like that, that progress, uh, that fragrance is a, is something restful or something blessed. Um, and, and to juxtapose that with that arena for struggle, which is like, uh, you know, in his days, you're thinking about like the, the, um, the gladiators, you know, it's like really rough, but then really restful. Take you down. 
Oh. Well, for us, we can go back to Andrea's weightlifting, right? If we if we struggle, we we get strength and we practice our deadlift every day, and then yet when we can do, you know, really heavy weight, right? That that sweet victory mm-hmm. of the progress. Yeah, and when we quit practicing for a while and we come back and try again, and we think we can stay at the same weight, we actually can't. And we have to accept, like I've seen it, Mm -hmm. um, that we have to go down instead of pulling the 25, got to pull the 20 for my practice now and rebuild my capacity. Well, and we continuous training. Right. (laughs) Yep. And when you bring this down to the smaller units of people, churches, or even families, when there's that struggle and it's hard and you, and you have to confess and you have to forgive. And, but then when it's good, then those times of, you know, when you get together again for Thanksgiving, <laughs> you know, it, it's good. It's a good thing, right? If the, if the family's mm-hmm. been that way with each other, if it hasn't been one that's torn itself apart, um, then those are good times. Right. And the same with the church when it might rub people the wrong way. And, but when you, when you work through those things and when you um, take instruction instead of like bucking at it, you know, instead of saying getting defensive, um, then when the church comes together to celebrate, whether it's, uh, whether it's to worship on Sunday every week or whether it's for the the bigger uh, feasts and holidays, um, it's just a sweet time of joy and, and, and rest uh, with one another. So I don't know. It's a hopeful picture. Mm-hmm. Well, I just, I mean, I don't know if y'all have anything left final to say, but I just want to read a lot more St. Basil at this point, because mm-hmm. it really was, uh, it, it was easy to read in the sense that he's so plain spoken, but then so deep to, to actually mm-hmm. contemplate. I was like, that's, that's where I'm at. That's where, that's, that's the spiritual food I'm, I'm, I'm capable of at the moment. So, uh, yeah. at, at best, so I like it. I'm grateful that we've heard it. Yeah, this is definitely an overdue classic. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, in a lot of venues that talk about great books and classics, the, these early church fathers typically, typically get left out or often get left out, um, from the, maybe so probably even from some Christian sources, but certainly from the more secular ones. And so I think it's important for us to recognize them and come back to them. Well, in our next book that we're going to read here together, your son Hawk would like to have that in his program this semester, but it's not in his program this semester, but he's fully right. aware of it because That's he's right. been taught a great teacher. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, we're going to do some, do some Plutarch. So yeah, Hawk is, um, they cover quite a bit in their freshman first semester, uh, Greeks and Romans, but you know, there's a lot of Greeks and Romans. And so, but they just, Plutarch is his favorite. So he mourns it. He mourns not reading it this semester. Um, he just, so instead he just brings it up whenever he can and other, other conversations. <laughs> he, he can, he can listen in with us. Uh, we're going to be reading specifically, uh, uh, the lawgivers, which is, uh, David Hicks translation, uh, or one of the ones he's done for Cersei. Um, and now I'm going to forget which two guys are in the lawgivers because I don't have it right in front of me, but I know the, so it, um, 
but it, it will start that uh, we'll we'll uh, start after our next uh, episode, which will be the Q and A for on the human condition. Um, and when we come back to that one, we'll have the between now and then we'll uh, finalize that reading schedule and have it posted somewhere as well as bring, uh, talk about it on the next podcast. But that is our next one. I'm pretty excited about it. I've, I think we've all read it once before because we read it as a as a team on staff. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. good to. That was really my first. Those two are the really my first uh, jumps into 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 Plutarch. So I'll be glad to kind of return to it. Yeah, and the Lawgivers is about Numa Pompilius and Lycurgus of Sparta. And I yes. remember when we read it as an office staff, we laughed out loud. Yeah, there were some pretty funny parts in there. Um, if you're out there and you're not familiar with these editions from Circe, uh, they, uh, they're they really great. I mean, if you know who David Hicks is, you would not be surprised by that. But um, the, the they're very readable translations, but then also just tons of great maps and information on uh, opposite pages. They're kind of laid out with the text on one side and then notes and, and maps and images of things on the other side. And um, just so it's really a great, nice and big like lays flat it's good 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 stuff so uh check that out you can get it uh, obviously from cersei uh cersei's website um you can get it from a couple other vendors out there that carry it as well but the probably the fastest way to get it is through uh, cersei's site Addie, where are you going to be in two weeks well after our q a episode i will be headed to georgia for lift up our hearts fall regional conference I believe it's in Powder Springs, Georgia, so around Atlanta. Uh, mm-hmm. That's Friday, October 20th and 21st. We are also planning, if you haven't heard of our Hearth community, we have an online community of members who are going to meet in person that Friday night. We'll just go out to dinner, nice. get to know each other. But there's lots of great people there uh, set to speak. I was at the conference in Ohio um, earlier this year, that was great. Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing, you know, Kristen Rudd and Greg Wilbur and Heidi White and John Hodges. So come out and join us. The regionals are always a lot of fun because they're like the same great talks, kind of talks from the national, um, but in a little bit smaller environments, you get to kind of like hang out a little bit more and, you know, it's, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's fun. It's a little tighter environment, but, uh, and it's in your town, it's in your neck of the woods, you know? So if you're in the Atlanta area or anywhere nearby, Oregon. yeah. Oh. Or if you just like flying, then Atlanta's, <laughs> Atlanta's got a nice, an easy airport. Atlanta's got, got a nice big airport and it's, the weather's actually nice there this time of year, as opposed to the middle of the summer when it's not nice there. So <laughs> <That's true. laughs> it's a cool lineup. I'm a, I'm, I'm a little bummed that I won't be there actually, but, uh, but I get to, uh, talk to John Hodges pretty regularly on the Clarity podcast, and like he's just he's great to have there. And then I was just telling someone the other day that that Kristen Rudd and I have been arguing about uh, the Aeneid for like seven years. So um, yes, you have. <laughs> so she's always fun to listen to, and so it's a good uh, it's a good uh, good lineup, man. It'll be fun. All right. Well, thank you guys. Uh, looking forward to the Q and next time. If you have questions, you can send them in to podcast at searchinginstitute.org. And if you have any other suggestions or anything else or comments about the show, send it there too. And so we will be back next week with the, the Q&A for On the Human Condition. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the next book coming up, Lawgivers. And so we'll see you all then. Thanks for being here. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network. Mm-hmm.